0: I didn't take time last Sunday to deal with the message of Hosea and Isaiah that are found in verses 22 to 29 of Romans 9. Interestingly, if you look at Isaiah 1-1 and Hosea 1-1, these two prophets labored, if not in visible tandem, at least in spiritual chorus. Uh, all through their respective years of ministry, notice that both of them, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. For our purposes today, Paul is still responding to what I designated as a third question regarding the issue of election. Why? Should God still blame us? And a part of this third explanation that he gives for election, Paul points out how God foretold these things in Scripture. And he even includes himself. Verse 24 of chapter 9, he says, Even us whom he called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. For Paul... God's way of dealing with both Jews and Gentiles was another illustration of his purpose in election which I demonstrated was service and not salvation. In verses 25 to 26 of chapter 9, Paul quotes from two Different texts from Mosea to explain God's amazing inclusion of the Gentiles. And then in verses 27 to 29, he quotes two texts from Isaiah to explain his equally amazing reduction of Jewish inclusion to merely a remnant. In order to understand Paul's handling of these texts, I think you and I need to remember or think about how the New Testament thinks in terms of prophecies in the Old Testament. First of all, there is an immediate and literal understanding of the text in the history of Israel. Secondly, there is an immediate and spiritual understanding in terms of the church and uh, in terms of Christ. And thirdly then, there would be an ultimate or eternal in terms of God's consummated kingdom. In the case of Hosea, the prophecy takes the form of God's promise in mercy to overturn an apparently hopeless situation. To love again those he had declared unlovable, unloved. Remember the story? Hosea is told to go and marry a prostitute. Knowing that she would be unfaithful. <coughs> and when she was to leave, he was to go each time and seek her back. And Hosea was told, I want you to know what it's like from my perspective when Israel keeps walking away to the idols. And then I go and redeem her and call her back. The immediate, the literal application was to Israel in the 8th century B.C. Uh, They had been repudiated and judged by God for their apostasy, for going and seeking idols. But he had promised a reconciliation and a reinstatement. Then Paul turns to Isaiah from the inclusion of the Gentiles to the exclusion of the Jews, apart from a remnant, that is. And the historical background for those two Isaiah texts is again one of national apostasy in the 8th century BC. Although it now relates to the southern kingdom of Judah. Hosea in the northern kingdom, Isaiah in the southern kingdom. And the significance of the text from Isaiah, Isaiah 10 and Isaiah 1, lies in the contrast that they contain within them where one speaks of the majority, that the number of Israelites are going to be like the sand of the sea or the stars of the sky. God's promise to Abraham. And yet, it had to do with election to service. Because in comparison with the countless number of Israelites, the stars, the grains of sand, only a small remnant was going to be saved from Israel within Israel similarly in verse 29 out of the total destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah how many were saved? just Lot and his daughters you see by bringing the Hosea and the Isaiah text together Paul provides Old, old Testament warrant for his vision that on the one hand God has called us He's called all of us. His desire is for all people to be saved. That's what Paul writes to Timothy. And we have been elected to fulfill a service. Each one of us. I don't know what your particular gifting is. Uh, One of the previous presidents down at Lincoln, and I don't think it was unique to him. I don't remember him ever saying it was unique. But Chuck McNeely used to talk about our own system of global positioning, GPS. And he talked about it in terms of our gifts, our passions, and our situation, our location. Each one of us is gifted differently. Each one of us has a different passion. I have had people say to me, well, I think we ought to do this. Cindy did it a while back. I'd like to see us have a good preschool here at the church. And I said, good. I'll support you in whatever way I can. Because it's not my passion. I had working with little kids as a passion for several years. And and I love teaching first and second graders. But it's not my passion. And so I come along to support and assist those who have both the gifts and the passion and the setting." in order to do it. We have been called, each one of us, Uh, we're going to talk about some of that in the days to come, how we can start using our gifts to reach out to the community. For instance, uh, Rich has gotten involved in flipping cars, getting cars at the auction and fixing them up and everything. And one of my ideas, Rich, was that maybe we could do that every once in a while and provide a car for someone that we know of in the community who needs a better vehicle and then take theirs and do with it what we can. Just ways that we can use our gifts, our talents, to answer God's call for us to be ministering. We have an example of that in the congregation recently. We have a lady who relieved Kay of one of the things she was doing by her willingness to come alongside and start sending out cards. Uh, we provide her with a postage so that she can send out cards on behalf of the church. That is a ministry. Because I, I want you to do it. Raise your hand if you like getting a card in the mail on your birthday or anniversary or special day. Yeah. That is a ministry. I don't like to talk on the phone. But there's probably some of you who do. And we would be more than glad to give you a list of people and phone numbers to call and just say, hey, I'm calling on behalf of the church. How are you doing? Is there anything you need? Any way we can reach out to you? God has called us all to service. But on the other hand, Paul's conscious of the serious imbalance between the size of the Gentile participation and now the size of the Jewish participation in terms of the redeemed community. And as Hosea prophesied, multitudes of Gentiles, formerly disenfranchised, have now become welcome as the people of God. As Isaiah prophesied, however, the Jewish membership was only a remnant of the nation, So small, in fact, as to constitute not the inclusion of Israel, but its exclusion. Nor its acceptance, but its rejection. Which we're going to come to again when we get to Romans 11. Just yesterday, just yesterday, I had a conversation with a man who still feels like and believes that the nation of Israel somehow is involved in the plans for the future. That's not uncommon. But listen, please. Jesus himself had foretold the situation. Matthew chapter 8, verses 10 and following. It's the healing of the centurion's servant. And Jesus said, I tell you, many will come from east and west. How would his hearers have understood that? Non-ethnic Jews. Gentiles. That's who comes from east and west. Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons, who would the sons be? Ethnic Israel, ethnic Jews, the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. See, what Jesus is saying is election is about service, not about salvation. of Israel had been called. They had been called to do certain things. And all of those were fulfilled and completed with the coming of Jesus Christ in terms of Ele- Israel's election and calling. And that brings us to the fourth question today. What shall we say then? which he asked in verse 14, but now basically it's how do we wrap this all up in light of the argument he has been developing. What conclusion would be legitimate for you and I to understand? In particular, focused with the unbelief of the majority of Israel and the minority status of believing Israel, how have these things come about? Once again, it's a question of why. Why? I have people very close to me who are struggling with the issue of whether or not there is a possibility of universal salvation. That somehow, ultimately, before the end of all things, and they look really strongly at that verse that says, every knee will bow and every tongue will proclaim. But I don't read that in Scriptures, do you? Jesus said, Narrow and straight is the way that leads to eternal life. But what? <coughs> Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many will come and say, Jesus, didn't we do all these great things? And He'll say, Depart from Me, I never knew you. Now, I have family members that I love dearly that from every indication in terms of the way they're living, their lack of interest in worshiping with the body of Christ, their failure to want to read God's Word on a regular basis, all kinds of factors. I don't think I'm going to be with them in heaven. So, let's dig into the text. It's not very many verses today. Just the completion of chapter 9, verse 30, through the fourth verse of chapter 10. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness
1: to everyone
0: who believes. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word today in response to this question, why? Notice how Paul began with a description, he continued with an explanation, and then he ended with a biblical confirmation. So here's the image that I want you to consider today. Unless the two paths meet at some point beyond that which we see, which they don't because they're headed in opposite directions only one way can be correct I I, kind of like that little show uh, where all the dogs go to heaven it's kind of cute but listen to me all roads don't lead to heaven And as Paul begins to answer the question, the very first thing he does is give a description in verses 30 and 31. And the description that he gives is kind of topsy turvy On the one hand, Gentiles, by the way, there is no definite article, article, not the Gentiles, but Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. For Paul to describe pagans as not pursuing righteousness is a major understatement. Most are at least godless and self-centered, going their own way, lovers of themselves, of money, of pleasure, rather than lovers of God and of goodness. Nevertheless, Paul says they have been able to obtain what they did not pursue. How? Because when they heard the gospel of justification by faith, the Holy Spirit worked in them so powerfully that Paul says they laid hold of it. That's almost with violence. Katalambano is the Greek word. Grabbing a hold of. By faith. But Israel, on the other hand, who pursued a law of righteousness has not obtained it, he says in verse 31. Israel's pursuit of righteousness was almost proverbial. They were imbued with a religious and moral zeal, which would some would call fanaticism. I mean, come on! Walking around with things hanging from your forehead and on your wrists and real long robes with phylacteries and making sure that they stopped and usually intentionally on a street corner when the time for prayer came so they could post out their prayers. Jesse and I listened to a comedian the other night, Tim Hawkins, a Christian comedian. He's so funny. He said, have you ever noticed how some people can be talking to you and you'll ask them to pray and all of a sudden they'll say, oh, our Father who... Where did that voice come from? They had a zeal. But it was a fanaticism. So the question would be why then were they not able to obtain it? And Paul uses a different verb, meaning to reach and arrive at, when he talks about the Gentiles. And the reason that the Jews didn't arrive at what they were pursuing is because it was an impossible goal. They were heading in the wrong direction, the wrong path. They were trying to do it on their own efforts. I haven't done very well recently on my way. I haven't done real well recently on getting over to work out. I decided that what I need, knowing my own self-discipline, is I need an accountability partner. I need to find somebody that I can connect with that each day we can say, and I know who it's going to be, it's going to be the guy that motivated me in the very first place. A minister down in southern Indiana by the name of of Bruce Hawkins, and uh, just somebody who can say to me, hey, have you run yet today? early in the day how you doing on what you're eating because sometimes when we try to do it on our own we fail and the Jews who pursued righteousness never reached it while the Gentiles who did not pursue it did reach it and lay hold of it and so to explain why Paul gives us an explanation in verse 32 why not why couldn't Israel succeed in fulfilling the law and I think it's significant here that Paul's answer on this occasion makes no reference to God's purpose in election why because the issue is now not service election has to do with service not with salvation I just want to keep saying that over and over again. So sometimes when you, you hear somebody say, well, you know, the Bible says people are predestined. You can say, yeah, they're predestined to service, but not salvation. Paul attributes Israel's failure to arrive at her own folly by saying, because they pursued it not by faith. In fact he points out that they stumbled over the stumbling stone. In Galatians 5:1 he says basically the same thing but goes on to say that for ethnic Israel Christ crucified is an offense. And the Greek word listen to it scandalon what's it sound like? Scandal. The cross is a scandal. How can somebody who's going to be the Savior, how's the cross, you know, how, how somebody is this going to be a Messiah? How can they die on a horrible cross? For the Gentile, it was simply foolishness. What Paul means by this is they couldn't handle that proclamation. And you might ask, Well, okay, why do people stumble over the cross today, do they? And yes, they do. I believe it's because it undermines our attempts at self-righteousness. We want to do it on our own and do it our way. But that's heading in the wrong direction. If we could gain a righteous standing before God by our own obedience to his law, or even by doing more good things than by doing bad things. Have you ever heard somebody say that at a funeral? Well, I know he didn't go to church and he didn't worship, but he was a good guy. Yeah. and There's going to be a lot of good guys on the road to hell. is not about being a good guy or being a bad guy. It's about being a faithful, loyal trusting believer in Jesus Christ. You see, if we could do it on our own that would make the cross superfluous. If we could save ourselves why would Christ have to bother and die? And so the only thing Paul needed to do was provide some kind of biblical confirmation for what he was saying. And he does that in verse 33. And he finds biblical support just like Peter did in his first letter. Uh, Listen to how similar 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and following sounds to what we just read from Paul in Romans. Romans. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. We are to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. That's exactly what Paul says. they got the same passage in mind. So the honor is for you who believe but for those who do not believe the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Same thing Paul is saying. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. You don't have to raise your hand. I'm raising mine because I've heard it so many times well I know the Bible says but I think I guess they really think I'm concerned about what they think if it contradicts the Bible but I'm not if they feel something that contradicts what the Bible says they need to go see what they ate the night before because the Bible's going to be right and they're going to be wrong. And Paul brings together the same two rock sayings from Isaiah that Peter used. But Paul goes further than Peter by conflating them. He takes the beginning and the end out of Isaiah 28 and puts into the middle Isaiah 8. And basically he says the primary affirmation is that God Himself has laid down a solid rock or stone and we need to be believing in Him. And that rock, of course, is Jesus Christ. Not the Torah. Not the law. You remember the parable of the tenants? Mark 12? In the story that Jesus told after the landlord the owner, the master, had sent several of his servants back and the people beat them and murdered them who, by the way, represent the prophets. The master sends his only son and what do they do? They kill him. In Jesus' story, And then Jesus boldly applied to himself that prophecy of Psalm 118. Have you not read this? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. And Mark concludes, and they were seeking to arrest him but feared the people because they perceived that he had told this against them. At least they got one thing right. So the point Paul is making is that everybody has to decide how to relate to this rock which God has laid down. And there's only two possibilities. And the correct response is by submitting to God's righteousness. It involves putting our trust in Him. To take Him as the foundation of our lives and build on Him. Paul begins chapter 10 just like he began chapter 9 with a very personal reference to his love and his longing for them, the Israelites. I hear a lot of people, you might too, I hear a lot of people talking about how sincere people who are not living in trust, loyalty, and faithfulness to God, but how sincere they are. Paul has no doubt about the religious sincerity of his ancestors, the ethnic Jews. He can testify about them from his own experience, that they were zealous for God. And he knows what he's talking about because he himself in his pre-conversion life was extremely religious in his religion, as seen in his persecution of the church. Indeed, he was just as zealous for God as any of his contemporaries. And in Acts 29, he even described his own zeal as a form of obsession. So he's obliged to say that the Israelites of his ethnic Jewish friends, their zeal is not based on knowledge And yes, Scripture says it is not good to have zeal without knowledge. Sincerity is not enough. For we can be sincerely mistaken, sincerely wrong. The proper word for zeal without knowledge, commitment without reflection, enthusiasm without understanding is fanaticism and fanaticism is a horrid and dangerous state. How many of you really think that guys standing on the corner with placards, pointing fingers, and screaming at people on the streets of Chicago, you're going to go to hell if you don't confess and repent? How many of you think that that's really accomplishing much positive? Zeal? Oh, absolutely. Fanaticism? Yes. But first of all, they're not doing it in love. Secondly, it's seriously lacking knowledge. So having asserted their general condition of ignorance, Paul now points to two specific negatives. They didn't know the righteousness that comes from God, and they didn't submit to it. Indeed, they sought to establish their own. They chose to go the wrong direction. Now here's the problem. Ignorance of the true way and adoption of false ways are by no means limited to Jewish people. I hope you were just as appalled as I was in the last couple of weeks to hear the top person in the Catholic Church, the Pope, affirm a non-biblical lifestyle. Folks, we need to be loving people who are sinners. But we are no way to be condoning the sinful lifestyles that they are living. And those wrong ways, false ways are widespread among people of all faiths, including many professing Christians today. The Bible says that we know that God is righteous and we are not. Romans three ten. we already looked at it. There's no one righteous, not even one. And when we understand that we're not righteous and God is, we start looking around for a righteousness that somehow might fit what we want to do. But again, there's only two possible options before us. And the first is to attempt to build or establish our own righteousness by our own good works and our own religious observances which is doomed to failure, and the other is to submit to God's righteousness by receiving it from Him as a free gift through faithfulness. That is, through our trust, our loyalty, and our faith in Jesus Christ. The fundamental error of those who are seeking to establish their own righteousness is that they have not understood the last verse of our text for today, verse 4. Paul's affirmation that Christ is the end, the telos, the fulfillment, the completion, the wholeness of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. When Paul wrote that we have died to the law and that we have been released from it in chapter 7 so that we no longer live under the law, chapter 6 where he was talking about baptism, He was referring to the law as the way of getting right with God. And the reason Christ has brought an end, has terminated the law, is so that we may have a righteousness that is available for everyone who believes. Not in your head propositional understanding and faith is not what the Bible is talking about. Because what does James say again? You'll have this verse well known before I ever die and leave this place. James says, You believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder in fear. See, it's not about what we have in our heads. It's how we're living in our lives. And in respect of salvation, Christ, and doing it yourself, those are incompatible alternatives. If righteousness is by the law, it's not by Christ. And if it's by Christ through faith, then it's not by the law. And indeed... When we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, when we repent of our past and confess before others our loyalty to Jesus, when we mortify, when we bury the old self in baptism and rise to walk in newness of life, Jesus has accomplished our salvation by his death and resurrection. That's what he said back in chapter 6. Those aren't works. Those are things we are doing to join with Christ in his death so that we can join with him in his resurrection. So here's the challenge. We need to have a zeal. We need to, to come alive. Have y'all heard what's going on the news what's going on down in down in Kentucky? Asbury. Theological Seminary, a Methodist Seminary, started a worship service three days ago now, and most of the people haven't left. And someone you know and his family and kids have been there and have been sharing about it. Evan and his wife and kids. The worship service came to the concluding hour and nobody left. They stayed and they kept singing and they went on all night and through the night and through the next day. And the last time I heard, they're still there. We need a zeal. We need to get our emotions out of the closet and bring them to church with us. But we need to do that with knowledge. Now, we're almost there. But when we come to Romans 12, we're not quite there yet. But when we come to Romans 12, we're going to come to one of those passages where here's what we're going to read. I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. You see there is something you have to do and no one can do it for you. To present your body as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable. But then Paul goes on. Do not be conformed to this world. There's a Christian lifestyle that you need to live by. But then he goes on. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. There's something you need to know. And then and only then are you ready. So that, as Paul concludes, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now I know this is pretty strong. But I think there is ample biblical evidence to say that you cannot know the will of God if you don't know the Word of God. so we need to be students of His Word. Let's pray. Father God, we come before You today and we we want to live the lifestyle that will make sure that we are ready to receive our eternal reward. Help us to realize that Your predetermining and your election, that all of that had to do with the plan, not us as individuals, whereas somebody else has been chosen to be eternally lost. Because you're a God of love, and you want us all to be saved. So help us to look to Jesus as our rock. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a hymn of commitment. Two verses of the song, Jesus is all the world to me. I've been told one time, don't tell people not to sing it if they don't mean it. Okay, I won't. But don't be a hypocrite. Let's sing. all the world to me. My life, my joy, Following him I know I'm right, he watches over me day and night. Following him by day and night, he's my friend. Anything else we need to say? Close. Yes, Jordan. Roger Lafoon of Goodland that we had on the prayer list that um, had terminal cancer, basically. His last scan showed that his cancer has shrunk significantly. It's very small, and um, it's really improved his mood, which is what we were most concerned about. He was really becoming down, and the chemo is working, and prayers are working, that uh, we're really happy that you Amen. Roger Lafoon. Um, Cancer has shrunk, chemo's working, mood is elevated. Praise the Lord. Anything else before we leave? Let's all stand together, we'll have a closing prayer, and then we'll sing our verse and chorus of the month, Jesus loves me. (laughs) Father God, thanks for allowing us this opportunity to join together as the church. And help us now that we have gathered to worship Help us to depart here and find ways to serve. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. Amen.